0: Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and some special guests. This week, Kate Kendall, Jenny Pizer, Dustin Lance Black, and Cleve Jones. On Defining Marriage, we trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage, and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Chapter 12. You have to take part in your own liberation. Nothing wrong can happen tonight, thought Amy Balliette. It was election night, 2008, and she was curled up on a couch with her new wife, Jessica, as Barack Obama reached the crescendo of his victory speech. Tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, he said. Democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Amy and Jessica had met two years earlier in a perfectly lesbian fashion, at a live music performance in a coffee shop. In August of 2008, they held a wedding ceremony in their hometown of Seattle, then traveled to California to make it legal just a few days before the election. While their Seattle wedding was a romantic triumph, their California ceremony was a bit more perfunctory, and took place in a Vegas-style chapel so small it was just a single hallway. They stayed while family while they were in California. There's no way Prop Eight's going to pass, Amy's cousin told her. We all know it. That was a relief, thought Amy. One less thing to have to worry about. The minute Obama's speech was over, she opened her computer and checked the California election results. To her shock, Prop 8 was passing. She hit refresh, then hit it again and again and again. I got a punch in the face every time, she said. I've been angry before, but never this angry. She wasn't the only one angry and frustrated. Across the country, the passage of Prop 8 elicited a reaction not unlike the five stages of grief made famous by Swiss psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. As the reality of the defeat became clear, there was denial, with some demanding a recount. Others, in the bargaining stage, suggested a lawsuit to invalidate the ban. Personally, I felt depression. Trudging home alone from an election night party, I kept repeating to myself, What now? What now? What now? James was 5,400 miles away. He was out of my reach, and now marriage was, too. Kate Kendall had to process all of those feelings, not just for herself, but for the whole community. The PropAid campaign had been her full-time job, in fact, her life, for the last couple of months, and now it felt like something had died. But she didn't have time to grieve. The phone calls started the next day. Supporters wanted to know what came next. Reporters wanted a post-mortem on the campaign, and her colleagues were looking to her for leadership. I kept trying to refer calls to the campaign consultants, the campaign manager, she said. And no one else was taking these calls, or we'd get a text back saying, You handle it, I can't. They'd gotten out of town. I could hear the mix of anger and sadness in her voice, as she remembered. They weren't going to talk to anybody. They weren't saying anything. We were the only ones left to talk to. No one else there was going to take responsibility. We meant the leaders of the state's nonprofits, the ones who had been nudged out of the way by the campaign consultants. They had wielded relatively little authority over day-to-day decisions, but now it was up to public figures like Kate, Equality California's Jeff Kors, and the LA Center's Lori Jean to explain the loss. You guys at Equality California are going to go down in history as the ones who lost Prop 8, Kate told Jeff, right before a hostile town hall meeting in a frigid, unheated auditorium one block from where Mike Marshall held his victory-loss party eight years earlier after the passage of Prop 22. Kate would have liked nothing more than to have stepped out of the spotlight. Two nights after the election, word spread that there was to be a massive rally at City Hall in San Francisco, and she was absolutely sure that she should not attend. It would simply have been too traumatic, too embarrassing to face thousands of people let down by the campaign. But when she told Jeff how she felt, he shook his head. You've got to go, he told her. We can't not go. We have to. And so that's how they found themselves huddled in winter coats at the side of City Hall, where Kate had attended so many marriages, including her own. She stood next to Jeff and cried as a crowd swelled and swelled and swelled. At some point, she realized that thousands of people were descending on City Hall to light candles and mourn together. Who were all these people? Where were they before the vote? Carol Migden, the state senator who'd spent most of her legislative career trying to pass equality bills, came across Kate and Jeff standing miserably in the throng. She gave them both a hug. You have nothing to be ashamed of, she said, the crowd jostling around them. We're not done yet. We'll come back. We'll beat this thing. Sometimes protest crowds can have a sort of collective intelligence, like a swarm of ants. They might cluster around an intriguing focal point or drift apart in search of nourishment. And sometimes they'll decide that it's time to march, and then there's no stopping them. That's what happened that night in San Francisco. Not content to light candles on the steps of City Hall, the crowd swelled until it burst down Market Street, headed for the Castro. That's where it swept me up. I left work early to come see the rally, and as far as I knew, the action was all supposed to happen at Civic Center. But when I emerged from the subway, it was into a determined crowd, marching in the opposite direction. Separate church and state, read one sign. Prop 8 is a crime, said another. Yes, we can. Fags are human. Prop 8 equals hate, said some more. Off to the side, some young people raved a massive rainbow flag. A lone man carried a sign reading, Marriage always equals one man and one woman, and a cluster of college students surrounded him to argue. Police were doing their best to keep traffic flowing through intersections, but some protesters unfurled the giant banner reading, Repeal Prop 8, that blocked the entire street. Police cars drove up to the side, their headlights shining through the cloth and projecting the message back onto the crowd. The throng was even thicker in the Castro, and news cameras scurried frantically for a vantage point to capture the magnitude of the protest. Hundreds upon hundreds of people just kept streaming down Market Street, past Harvey Milk Plaza. There was no end to the crowd, and a college-age boy with a megaphone bellowed sarcastic marriage proposals at people as they passed. "'Marry me!' he yelled, smirking at all the fluttering signs. I felt a sharp pang of sadness as I passed him. Overnight, those words had become impossible, a reminder of what had been snatched away. A proposal at that point felt to me like a meaningless tease. The mood was at its most somber in front of the Castro Theater, where the marquee read simply, "'Milk.' The theater, an icon of San Francisco's neighborhood since the 1970s, was screening a just-released biopic about Harvey Milk and his work to defeat the Briggs Initiative back in the 70s. The sight of his name was another painful reminder of loss, but it was also an inspiring reminder of the power of determined activism. As they marched by, the crowd held their signs aloft. Unfair and wrong, they read. That was true. It was unfair and wrong. But it had won on a street corner a block away a band blasted the crowd with marching music to buoy the mood urging them down 18th street towards dolores park at 18th and church everyone seemed to pause waving their signs and cheering in front of a stopped train i started to walk uphill trying to get far enough away to take a photo there must have been a thousand people gathered there i was amazed that so many people cared as much about marriage as i did did they all have boyfriends in sweden too what were they doing here "'As I snapped a photo, I heard a dull roar from across the park "'and took a few more steps up to the top of the hill. "'On the other side was a crowd twice as large. "'A DJ had set up a generator and a booth "'and blasted music into a crowd of hundreds more people. "'Dolores Park was absolutely packed with protesters, "'some with signs, some with children, "'all furious and sad and heartbroken. "'At the east entrance to the park, "'Univision was interviewing local drag queen Poyo Del Mar, "'resplendent in furry knee-high boots.' Two boys stood on top of a wall, embracing each other and holding an American flag. A toddler in a stroller waved an upside-down No One Ate sign at passers-by. A man wearing a black hoodie with the slogan Silence Equals Death looked on. Standing up on the hilltop, watching the crowd, I was an emotional basket case. I started to cry again and thought about calling James to hear his voice and remind myself that he'd be back in just a few months. But it was 3 a.m. in Stockholm. Elsewhere in the crowd, Kate was crying too but it was cathartic for her, a moment that pushed the grieving process along. That night, she saw that she didn't have to mourn for marriage, not yet. Awakened by loss, tonight the community was bigger and stronger than she had ever seen. Carol was right. They weren't done yet. They were going to come back. They were going to beat this thing. It was great to see, she told me later, one thing that I'd felt in the run-up to Prop 8 and over the summer was a tremendous amount of apathy. It was a false sense of security, based on some of the public polling that was released. People just assumed we were going to win. They just thought, Kate, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Of course we're going to win. And then, when that didn't happen, I think there was a reaction, essentially, what the hell? So a whole bunch of young activists got engaged in their movement. Not our movement, not the gay movement, but their movement. They made it their own. When I asked Jeff Kors, a former lawyer and head of Equality California, what he remembered from that night, he was characteristically analytical. People just want to live their lives, which is understandable, he said. And it took them realizing, you have to take part in your own liberation. We were sitting in the lobby of San Francisco's LGBT Center when he told me this, and I nodded happily because it sounded so wise. Then later, when I tried to explain it to a friend, she said, wait, liberation how? From what? And I could only stammer. A homophobia, I guessed. The closet, Prop 8? Uh Uh-huh, she said. How about liberation from being unmarried, I said. I felt trapped in unmarriage these days, perpetually a boyfriend and never a spouse. Somehow, I reasoned, liberation must mean getting hitched. Maybe I didn't quite understand the concept as well as I thought. I didn't get it then, but what liberation really means is having a choice. It means having the opportunity to decide what you are, how you live, and who you surround yourself with. It's not the act of getting married that matters. It's the freedom to decide how to define your life, define your relationships, and define what it is that you have with the person you love. It's something that Chad Griffin witnessed firsthand the night after the election. Still recovering from the world's most depressing election night party, Chad had flown back to Los Angeles. His office was in Beverly Hills, and he was driving home through West Hollywood when he noticed a trickle of people winding through the street up ahead. He had no idea that there was a protest planned, and that's because there wasn't. It was supposed to be a calm candlelight vigil at West Hollywood Park. But like the protest in San Francisco, the numbers swelled to a breaking point that released the crowd down the city's main thoroughfare. Chad idled his car in the street as people started walking through traffic on all sides. What are these people doing, he thought. Looking around, he saw that he was about to be swept up in a crush of humanity, so he figured he might as well just sit and watch. He'd never seen anything like it, and he was awestruck. "'This is the beginning of something,' he said, sitting in his car as 2,000 angry, heartbroken, frustrated, grieving strangers stampeded past. Years later, I'd come to work for Chad on the lawsuit to overturn Proposition 8. One afternoon, sitting in his office, he described that night, and while he spoke, his gaze drifted to a poster hanging across from his desk. It was a framed campaign poster from a 1976 campaign in Florida to protect a nondiscrimination ordinance.' Back then, voters had overwhelmingly opposed the gay community, with 70% voting to keep discrimination legal. The magnitude of the opposition in 1976 was staggering, but it's often cited as the shock that galvanized gays and lesbians to political action. Had it not happened, a groundswell of community support might not have grown behind Harvey Milk the following year. David Mixner and Fred Carger might not have mobilized against the Briggs Initiative. ACT UP might not have emerged from the AIDS epidemic. The gay community's political conscience had been awakened before, and in the aftermath of Prop 8, it was awakening again. That night Chad said, thinking back to the sea of people washing through the streets of Los Angeles, I knew the whole world was shifting. But shifting to what? Amy Ballet couldn't wait to get out of Cleveland. From the age of 16 when she came out as a lesbian, she knew it wasn't the right place for her. But until she could leave, she was determined to make the most of her surroundings. As a teen, she came across a speech by Ken Jennings, the executive director of the Gay Lesbian and Straight Education Network, and his commitment to helping others gave her a purpose. I said to myself, I want to be that person one day, I want to be an activist through and through at all times. Starting in high school, she immersed herself in causes. And when she enrolled in Cleveland State University, she and her friend Willow Witty became the agitators who organized protests and parties and vigils. The need for LGBT activism at her school was acute. In a sociology class, a classmate opined that homosexuals are neither male nor female. Another student explained their theory that homosexuals start as sexual deviants, but when they go to jail, they turn gay because they can't stop having sex. Amy did the best she could in this environment, working with the school's GSA to secure grants for a World AIDS Day event, hold a diversity-themed bake sale, and arrange HIV testing. Then, when it came time to graduate, Amy put as many miles as she could between herself and that sociology class. I moved to Seattle, she said, and Seattle was taking care of it all on their own. I didn't need to do anything. At last, she could focus on her dream of starting a design company rather than on sprucing up Cleveland. And for a few years, that worked out just fine. It was a day or two after the 2008 election that her friend Willow, still back in Ohio, sent out a mass email to some of the old GSA contacts. She said, There's a lot going on around the country right now where everybody's angry about Prop 8, but nobody knows what to do, Amy recalled. Here's a letter that I wrote to Cleveland's Gay Straight Community Center, asking them to band together and have a protest in Cleveland. If anybody else would like to do something like this, here's my letter. Take it, change the name, and send it to your community center. Willow, why are we waiting for the community center to do something? Amy wrote back. They have all these things that they have to get done this year. It's not easy for a publicly funded community center to stop what they're doing and react. Their work as LGBT activists in Ohio had introduced them to community leaders all across the country. If ever there was a time to make use of their contact lists, it was now. We know people in every major city, Amy wrote. Why don't we just email them and ask them to do a protest? She had recently registered the domain jointheimpact.com, with vague plans to host a discussion board about LGBT issues. You know, I have this domain name, she added. Let me just put up a WordPress blog. An hour later, the Join the Impact website featured two posts. One was a Hello World placeholder. The other began Prop 8 Protest, a call to the LGBTQ community, friends, and family. The declaration was straightforward enough. On the steps of your city hall on November 15th at 10.30 a.m., the site said, our community will take to the streets and speak out against Proposition 8. The message concluded, we need organizers in every major city to work with us and get out the protest. Amy asked Willow to post a link to Facebook on Friday night, since she didn't have a Facebook account of her own at the time. Then she went back to whatever she was doing and forgot about it. In a best-case scenario, she figured, they would get volunteers in 5 to 10 cities to hold protests of 30 to 40 people. Within six hours, the site had attracted 10,000 visitors. By Sunday, they were getting 50,000 per hour. The traffic was so intense that the site crashed, and a friend who owned a hosting company had to step in with hundreds of dollars worth of donated bandwidth. Doing their best to keep their shock under control, Amy and Willow scrambled to respond to the sudden crush of emails and tweets and offers of help. Volunteers in dozens and then hundreds of cities wanted to host rallies, and the two women took turns updating the site with a comprehensive global list. As the number of events ticked up into the hundreds, they were soon overwhelmed. They'd signed themselves up for organizing a global protest movement, and given themselves less than a week to put it together. They might have collapsed under the strain if Amy hadn't gotten a call from a company called Wet Paint, a little Seattle startup that was building a platform for online collaboration. Amy doesn't remember much about the call since the week before the protests was mostly a panicked blur. They said, we have this tool that is perfect for what you're trying to do, she said. If she used their platform to organize protests, they told her, people could input their own events to the global listing instead of asking her to do each one manually. Wow, that's amazing, Amy told them, but added, it's going to take me forever to put that together. No, said the wet-paint folks. We've been doing it all weekend for you. A team of ten had donated their weekend to setting up the site. Amy gratefully moved the Join the Impact site onto their platform, let the software take the reins, and by the end of the week, the protests were ready to begin. The initial estimate of five to ten events had grown to three or four hundred. Every state hosted at least one, and eight countries joined in. A million people participated, and almost none of them knew who Amy was. She was happy to keep it that way. On Saturday morning, she headed down to Volunteer Park in Seattle. "'Nobody there really knew that I was the one who had called for it,' she said. "'I really enjoyed that, because I was able to just experience it.'" The march began with a colossal rainbow flag, the width of a city street and length of a block, held aloft by volunteers who carried it in front of the crowd as they set out from the park. Estimates varied. It might have been 6,000 at one point, or maybe 12,000 at another, but it was definitely immense. The protest made its way across Capitol Hill, down Broadway, and down the hill to downtown, where everyone clustered and yelled all afternoon. "'Fuck diplomacy, we want rights,' read one sign. "'No more prop hate,' said another. One protester held a light-hearted, "'Taste the rainbow!' slogan, next to the more dour message, "'I am a victim of hate.'" She said a somewhat unpronounceable sign. There were only a few counter-protesters. Off to the side of the route, a woman with a frozen smile held a sign that said, "'Repent, pervert!' A man waved a sign at staring tourists as their bus skirted the edge of the crowd. "'You're in big trouble with God, sinner man,' his sign said. "'Repent and obey Jesus, your judge.' The anti-gay protesters clustered in a tight knot near a monorail terminal, staring out at the passers-by like meerkats encircled by lions. There were fewer than ten of them versus thousands of marchers. "'What do we want? Equal rights,' the crowd chanted. "'When do we want it?' "'Now!' As they continued through downtown, the jubilant procession grew so long that the chant fell out of sync with itself. The front of the crowd was shouting, "'What do we want?' while the rear hollered, "'When do we want it?' like a round-robin performance of "'Row, row, row your boat.'" Amy was invisible in all of this. There was no formal leadership, no long-term plan, no interest in a press release or signature gathering. She only did one interview, and it was with the BBC. The experience made her so nervous and self-conscious that she accidentally slipped into a British accent. That was enough on-camera exposure for one day, thank you very much. In most cities, the protest simply dispersed as the sun began to set. I marched in San Francisco, winding for miles up hills and around parks, stretching through Chinatown to the waterfront and shedding marchers hour by hour, until the crowd of 7,500 had dwindled to only a few dozen people by the time it returned, exhausted and sore to City Hall. Amy went to bed that night, still feeling some disbelief over the day's events and when she woke up the next morning, it was to questions about where she'd lead the community next. She didn't have an answer to that, and she wasn't sure she wanted one. At first, she tried to recapture that magic of the initial protests, but success was elusive. She soon found herself working harder than ever, with even less to show for it. The follow-up events, a candlelight vigil at Christmas time, then a day of community service, were moderately successful, in that anyone showed up at all. But it would be a stretch to call a few dozen attendees crowds, After the protests' excited show of force, the intense emotion was dissipating. The country's collective stages of grief had moved along to acceptance, and Amy started to wonder why Join the impact needed to exist. She had just been married a few months earlier, after all, and was trying to start her own company. The first year should be this amazing yay-we're-married year, she said. Instead, I was working 85 hours a week. My wife was incredibly supportive, but it was a strain. And then there were the death threats. Most, she said, were from gay people who were angry with her. "'Angry with the way I was handling the situation,' she sighed. "'Angry that I wasn't angry enough.'" If this is what leading a movement looked like, she decided, she could do without it. She couldn't be a wife, an entrepreneur, and a revolutionary. One of those roles would have to go. "'When I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, my identity was the fact that I was gay. It was very much who I was,' she said. "'When I moved out to Seattle, that weight disappeared. And suddenly I was able to become Amy and become career woman, become wife. All of those things that I had always wanted.'" But leading a global community meant standing in a torrent of activity that was eroding the life that she wanted to build for herself. About three months in, I felt like I was back into that cage, she said. There was nothing else about me but the fact that I was gay. That's when she decided to step away and let an organization that had drawn a million people into the streets quietly disappear. There was a little pang of regret about saying goodbye to her moment of activism. She still remembered that Glisten speech that she saw when she was 16 and recalled her teenage drive. It's not an easy job, she said, but I'm glad to have it behind me. What Amy had discovered was the same thing sought by the protesters. The feeling of liberation, choice, the freedom to decide who you are, what you can do, who you can be, and what you are to others. More importantly, she found that as much as liberation is about deciding who you are, it's often about deciding what you're not. Nobody's going to make that decision for you, and if they try, maybe they're not to be trusted. That's why November 5th was such a big wake-up call for queers and their allies. To most, it seemed like marriage equality just happened when the California Supreme Court ruled. The litigation had been so quiet since 2004 that it appeared as though the state had gained the freedom to marry with no effort at all. Over the summer of 2008 and into the last days of the campaign, the prevailing attitude was that you don't need to participate in your own liberation. Liberation was just something that simply happened to the right people, because the universe was a just and good place. But with the passage of Proposition 8, it was clear that there had been people making decisions and pulling levers the whole time, steering the movement along and sometimes not doing a great job of it. It's no coincidence that Join the Impact went viral when it did. On November 5th, California's LGBT couples found themselves in the unlikely position of being a 16-year-old lesbian in an Ohio sociology class, unwelcome, misunderstood, and battered by the majority. They'd just enjoyed a whole summer of weddings, but on Election Day, the majority of voters were revealed to be misinformed about queers to the point of hostility. Amy had been there. She knew it was possible to stand up for yourself under fire, and in the span of less than a week, she showed everyone how. And then she was done. For some, the act of participating in your own liberation is as all-consuming as running a movement, or simple as holding up a sign for a day. It could be exercising your freedom to marry, or reveling in your choice to stay single. And for some folks... It means liberating yourself from liberation. So you're free to just be Amy. Uh, Thank you for joining us for some opening banter.
1: On this day, the day that we're recording this, but probably not the day anyone's listening to this, because it doesn't go up today, it is National Coming Out Day. That's true. Do you have any announcements to make? Um... I'm coming out. I'm actually leaving the house today. That's my announcement. You're like the groundhog?
0: I am. Coming I am. out of your hidey hole? Exactly. I'm going to see my shadow, and it's going to cause uh, a winter. I'm <laughs> the reverse groundhog.
1: I bring bad weather. Interesting that you are coming out as an animal.
0: <laughs> Do we need to talk about the furry article again? I have another... I have a... <laughs> is that what you're trying to bring up? Or is that just me bringing it up out of, out of, out of nowhere?
1: Ah, It just keeps coming up. It does, somehow. Like I've, that groundhog. Can't keep it down.
0: I have, a new, I have a new furry piece up. This time it's uh, a video that you can find on my YouTube channel where I tell some more stories from uh, Rain First, Seattle's largest furry convention. And uh, you can see some pictures of the folks in their suits and hear a touching, heartwarming story of a furry whose life was altered uh, when uh, he was in a place where he was, he was near death and uh, went on to, to help many other people.
1: But presumably, dear listener, didn't come here to hear about furries. They came here to hear about marriage equality. And that's it. And that's it. Well, uh, so this chapter, we talked a little bit about uh, the day after Prop 8 and the days
0: following Prop 8, um, when folks took to the streets and uh, it came, it came out of the closets. It's National Coming Out Day, so what a perfect day to come out of the closet and into the street, out of the bars and into the streets. So let's start with, with Kate Kendall, uh, who's one of the people who was uh, a leader of the Prop 8, the No on Prop 8 campaign. She wasn't listened to as much as maybe she could have been. Uh, she had a lot of expertise in this field, but uh, there was a lot of cam- campaign consultants who took over the campaign. Uh, and then the day after Prop 8, Eight passed. They were nowhere to be found. They all disappeared back to Sacramento, uh, leaving Kate to uh, fend for herself.
2: The night after we lost, there was a small little rally at City Hall. Maybe a couple of hundred people, and that was the that was a rally I did not want to go to. I was bereft, as you note in the book. Jeff Coors, the executive director of Equality California, said you have to go, and I'm really glad I went because it did provide. Some healing. All of us together, no one pointed a finger at me or Jeff and said, you're why we lost. People just understood, you know what, this is a collective loss. The next day though, I had to be on a plane to go to a conference in Boston, which I absolutely did not want to do, but had committed to it months prior. So I was not here when the thousands of people poured out into the streets in San Francisco and so many other towns. But I remember Sandy calling me, and she hardly ever called me when I was on a trip. She said, I just need to tell you, the kids and I are marching in the Castro. And she said, Kate, you would not believe how many people are here. They've got candles, they're marching. She said, there are probably five, 6,000 people at a minimum, every type and hue you can imagine. And I mean, I just burst into tears. That was the moment where I thought, okay, we're not going to take this lying down. I think we have a whole new generation of activists. I think we have a generation of much fiercer and uncompromising activists who were so shocked and felt so sucker punched by the passage of Prop 8 that they vowed uh, either explicitly or implicitly never again. And I feel like that fuel and energy And momentum is how we got to a moment where we're seven years later, which is like the blink of an eye. We have marriage equality nationwide.
3: I remember feeling gratified and part of a healing process that the crowds were so big. I mean, the march in L.A. was a huge crowd.
0: That's Jenny Pizer from Lambda Legal.
3: And there were wonderful, you know, signs and energy that added to a kind of, you know, healing and support and that that people were shocked and angry and that it wasn't just gay people, it wasn't just our LGBT family. It was a really big community response that was a wonderful promise that, you know, those who care about us and are with us, you know, the numbers are growing. You know, the Prop 8 vote was one moment in a river of moments and that we're, you know, that river is growing and moving forward with, you know, more energy and uh, determination than ever. So it, it mattered a lot. There have been plenty of times of marching in the LGBT parades where the spirit was defiant. I remember very vividly the march on Washington in, in October of 1987.
0: That 87 March was this huge rally, Uh, about a half million people descended on Washington, D.C. Uh, And remember the context for that. Uh, Not only was it the dark days of the epidemic, but also a year earlier, the Supreme Court had upheld sodomy bans in Bowers v. Hardwick. So there was a lot of outrage.
3: You know, at that time, Doreen and I lived in D.C. I was working at NARAL. Uh, We had um, (laughs) had 28 or 29 uh, members of the Asian lesbian community sleeping on our floor, Uh, that had come from all over the country, but mostly California, for that march. That, I can tell you, was a defiant march. Um, You know, folks went to the Supreme Court and went where the police don't want you to go, and were gathered up. And when you do civil disobedience, you have to be prepared to be arrested. And uh, so I was there as a a legal observer. I mean, when I think about it, the ink was still wet on my law degree. But, uh, you know, it was a very serious time. Our friends were dying. And, you know, a majority of the Supreme Court said that our claim to equal liberty, to love, and not be made criminals, that that claim on our Constitution constitution was, at best, facetious. It was so insulting, so callous. People were hurt and angry, and we were grieving, you know, our brothers were dying. And that's what the Supreme Court had to say, so people were very angry.
0: And to a lot of folks, the day after Prop 8 felt very familiar.
4: The passage of Prop 8 just bitch-slapped uh, this whole generation of gay kids who thought they were free, who thought they were equal.
0: That's Cleve Jones, the organizer we've heard from on past episodes.
4: People were partying a lot, and so this whole new generation suddenly just slapped upside the head with the reality that even in California, a significant majority hated us enough to deny us these basic rights. And then, and I don't want to overstate the importance of it, but milk came out, and was seen by just about everybody in our community that, and gave them a history they had certainly had not been taught in high school. I think they were very inspired and it was a wonderful time for me because I, I had just turned 50 and was starting to feel really old and useless and suddenly I'm being exhumed, you know, and it was a wonderful gift for me to have the young people seek me out
0: And among those younger people?
4: My name is Dustin Lance Black. I came to Milk as an activist, knowing that a p- big part of activism is telling stories. So it was natural that when Milk met with Proposition 8, uh, well, there was a responsibility there to take the stage that Milk gave me and that the Oscars then gave me and to do something with it. You know, and then you get a lot of adrenaline and you when you win an Oscar and you go on stage and you make a promise for full federal equality uh, and, uh, y- you know, the way my mom raised me is if you make a promise, you better keep it. So, uh, you know, there, there went my next half decade of filmmaking.
0: Lance had just spent the better part of a decade working on a movie about LGBT equality. So this election really struck a chord with him.
4: And so I immediately tuned in uh, to see what uh, the folks who organized the No on 8 campaign, I wanted to see what they were doing. And they were doing a rally it was either the next day or, the, or two days later. I, I can't remember now. But uh, they were doing a rally in West Hollywood, right down uh, at the intersection of Santa Monica Boulevard and, and San Vicente, I think. And I thought, okay, well, I want to see what the tenor of that is. Uh, and, and you have to remember, I had just come off of a six-year study in uh, the, the power of, of anger and of fighting back and of protest and and so, you know, we hadn't done that for a very long time in the gay community. And so I was curious if that would happen. And when I got to the stage, it was, the tone was sedate. Uh, there were a lot of excuses from the leadership. And I can understand that. I'm, we were all a bit in shock. But it wasn't what we needed. And I joined hands with, with a guy who works closely with the West Hollywood City Council. And we we just said, hey, this is the wrong energy. This sends the wrong message. People were up there talking about another ballot initiative and, and blaming uh, certain minority groups and blaming uh, folks. Uh, and we needed to take responsibility, I thought. And so uh, we just started a whisper campaign through that crowd, which at that point was, it, it was at least uh, in the low thousands. And we said at eight o'clock, walk away from the stage. March up San Vicente, and we we started saying it, and you could really you could judge people's age by how they reacted. If they were under twenty five, their eyes lit up. If they were over fifty five, their eyes lit up. Anywhere in between, and they shrugged us off like we were some sort of lunatic fringe. And uh, and 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 truly, I just sort of waited. So it's seven fifty nine. I thought, boy, what's going to happen? And at that point, uh, one of the leaders of the No One Eight campaign was still up there on stage, still making excuses. And truly, when the clock struck eight, people turned and started marching up San Vicente. Uh, and it, and immediately, I went to the front with my friend who worked with the city council, and, um, and we started to uh, chant, and we started to uh, make our anger known. Um, And we were very quickly up to uh, Sunset Boulevard where we were met with the police and to their credit, I just went right up to them and had a conversation and they said, you just tell us where you want to go and we'll clear the way. But let us know first where you want to go. And that's what we did. And we took that protest uh, throughout the city for the next few hours. And, And the tone was appropriately angry. If you look to our history, we found solutions to these problems. When a minority gets beaten back at the ballot box, what do you do? Well, we had those examples all the way back in the 70s with Anita Bryant uh, versus Harvey Milk. And and folks took to the street and we made our frustration known and we made our anger known. And we took those opportunities to tell our personal stories and to correct the record and to, to move the needle so that, A, hopefully our civil rights aren't put up to a vote again. But B, if they are, we win.
1: All right, now it's question time, your favorite part of the podcast. Yes, I'm ready for you. I've got a lot of questions and I want them answered immediately. No. <laughs> that was immediate. Yes. And, and good improv, too. No. <laughs> you start this chapter talking about Amy Balliet and her partner, wife? Uh, Well, partner and then wife, yeah. Partner and then wife. Um, They lived in Seattle, uh, but they went down to California to get married during... The marriage window, right? Yes, in 2008. How common was that for people from out of state or even out of the country? I don't know if that makes any sense to yeah. come to California to get married. Quite common. Uh, even
0: during 2004, when there was a lot of doubt that those marriages would last or it would be legally valid... Uh, yeah, it was it was very common to meet people who traveled from far away. Um, you know, California has this sort of cachet. It's like, oh, it's it's sunny, beautiful California. It's a vacation place. And, uh,
1: you know, it's, there's something magical about getting married in California, especially San Francisco. And what did that mean? If you got married in California, but you lived in a state that didn't have marriage equality, what did that mean for your marriage? It could mean that your marriage was legally recognized in the state that
0: you live in. Or it could mean that you had a warm feeling and could tell people that you'd been married and- and receive no legal benefits from your state. It really depended on where you're coming from.
1: Sure. And prior to the Windsor decision at the Supreme Court, there was no federal recognition whatsoever, right? There was no – well, there was a limited federal recognition in small
0: ways. So, you know, stuff like, for example, uh, if you were receiving FEMA disaster assistance, uh, FEMA might recognize your same-sex partner. Um, Not because of a uh, federal policy on that, but just because FEMA's particular policy happened to be progressive. Um, But it was an insane patchwork of federal accommodations to get around the prohibition on – Um, the federal government recognizing marriages.
1: So is that part of the reason why a state-by-state approach uh, would have been more trouble than it's worth rather than going for nationwide equality at the Supreme Court? Well, it certainly would have been a lot of trouble. Um, I don't know if it would have been more
0: trouble than it was worth. Um, It's possible that the state-by-state approach would have been successful, and in which case, great. I mean, you know, that's a lot of trouble, but uh, it it would have been worth it if it meant that you could, you know, keep your house, for example. Um That having been said, the federal approach uh was very successful very quickly, so uh that was even better,
1: Sure, you could keep your house, but like what if you i don 't know moved um and you bought a house in a state that either didn 't recognize your marriage or recognized it under different conditions
0: yeah i mean i can 't even imagine you know uh, Imagine, like, you know, you're, you're from Maine, for example, and you get married and you have property and you have kids, for heaven's sake. And then, uh, you know, you have to go to Louisiana for, you know, to take care of family or because of a job. Uh, yeah. I imagine all that, all the stuff that you just assume that you had, um, you know,
1: second parent adoption of your kids and stuff like that. Just poof gone. You mentioned in the chapter that Kate Kendall said to Jeff Kors, you guys at Equality California are going to go down in history as the ones who lost Prop 8. Is that what has happened? Has history remembered it that way? People certainly did after Prop 8 passed. I mean, there was so much animosity
0: towards the major organizations. I mean, when I think back to that, um, people needed someone to be pissed at, and they were pissed at NCLR, and they were pissed at Equality California. They were really mad at, at human rights campaign. And, uh, yeah, those organizations and the leaders really bore the brunt of a lot of shouting. I remember going to a, um, town hall meeting, um, in San Francisco in the, uh, where was it? It was in the, in the, it was in some performance space. And huge, vast, cavernous uh, room where later, years later, I would see Britney Spears perform uh, this giant concert venue uh, that they had set up for, essentially, for the community to come and for three or four, maybe five hours, just yell angrily at the leaders of the campaign in this unheated room. So it was, you know, mid-November and freezing everyone's bundled in scarves and hats and they just one at a time getting up to the microphone taking their turn to yell angrily at poor kate kendall and jeff kors and i think steve smith was there and a few other people from the campaign what were they yelling oh you know there was all sorts of blame to go around um so it was stuff like you should have listened to the community more we needed more resources in the central valley um you, there should have been more outreach to the uh, to ally communities like African American communities and labor uh, there should have been uh more use of obama 's uh, endorsement of the campaign, all kinds of hindsight about about what the campaign should have done, uh, some of which was to be fair quite obvious like why didn't the campaign make more use of obama 's endorsement for god's sake um But yeah, so those organizations really bore the brunt of it, which really is not fair because the organizations were doing the best they could, but they had set up this campaign where the consultants were in charge of everything. And the consultants, it turns out, were not the best.
1: Right. That's what I was going to ask. The people who were getting yelled at were not the ones, ultimately, who were responsible for making those decisions. Or were they?
0: The people who were getting yelled at were not the people who made the worst of the worst decisions. Uh, They were the people who have been in the trenches for years, in some cases, decades, working away on this. And... um, they ceded power and took responsibilities that, as Kate says, uh, they were playing out of position. So uh, the people who were getting yelled at had expertise that they were not using. And to be fair, Prop 8 was sort of an experiment. Like, we had not had a campaign like that, certainly not with the resources that Prop 8 had. I mean, LGBT rights have been on the ballot for decades, but, uh, you know, it was still, there was there's not a lot of science and knowledge behind how to run a campaign. So, um you know, what history remembers is that there were a lot of organizations making a lot of mistakes, in part because they were still experimenting and just did not know the right thing to do. Uh, following Prop 8, Prop 8 was a real wake up call. We're going to talk about this in later chapters, um, where people said, hey, wait a minute, we've been doing this for years, actually decades, and we're not really learning our lessons. So let's just take some time
1: and do some research and figure out how to do this right for once. Sure. After Prop 8, when marriage equality ended up on the ballot in other states, didn't those other states just essentially try the same tactics that California used? Yeah. Following Prop 8, uh, it was on the ballot in, for example, Maine. And that was
0: another campaign that felt very similar. You know, At the time, people were like, oh, no, it's totally different. And the difference was that they had people with different accents in the ads. And they, they talked a little bit more about family, and they actually showed gay people in the ads. So it was... A slight improvement, but it was not as organized a learning opportunity. One of the reasons was actually because the at the time, the research was just so depressing. Uh, I talked to one person who was doing research, and uh, she did a bunch of polling and focus groups, and this is coming up later in the book, um, about, uh, you know... Uh, what do we tell voters to, to get them on our sides? And at the time, there was so little knowledge about what to say to voters that it seemed like it seemed hopeless. It seemed like there was nothing we could say to win. And so that's one reason that the research just wasn't being done. It was just too depressing to do.
1: One of the messages that they did settle on was the unfair and wrong message, right? Mm, uh,
0: you know, essentially, voters heard that and they're like, "Yeah, life's unfair. You know, I, I got problems too. Uh, who cares if it's unfair?" And, you know, and also... Fair enough, yeah. yeah reinforce this message. We're going to talk about this in a later chapter, um, that gay people get married because it's fair, which is a weird position to be in. Like, when when straight people get married, they're like, oh, I got married because I was in love, not because of fairness. So it accidentally reinforced this message that gay people get married for different reasons than straight people.
1: You mentioned in the protests uh, that happened immediately after Prop 8, thinking... You know, where were all these people before the election? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where were they? They were in a couple places. Uh,
0: A lot of them were working on the Obama campaign.
1: Uh, Uh,
0: And uh, a lot of people had a sense of security that, uh, oh, well, we've got marriage now. And isn't it wonderful? And who would take
1: away marriage? That's a thing that seems to have come up a lot in the run up to Prop 8, that a lot of people were just certain it wasn't going to pass. Uh, Why were they so sure? Well, you know, I think a lot of them were in a bubble. So, Mm
0: -hmm. uh, you know, the folks who are likely to donate time and money to the campaign are people who are pretty secure, you know, in in their communities where, oh, well, everyone's so happy about marriage equality. So, you know, it's it's a good thing. And there's no there's no way we could possibly lose this.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, California is an enormous state with, you know, a handful of Bubbles of uh, dense population and diverse population, and the rest, uh, not so dense, not so diverse. Uh, and I think you know, you go up the five, and you see a lot of towns where marriage equality is probably not a thing people think about, and if they do think about it, they might not have the most favorable of opinions. And why is it that, uh, you know, people just assumed San Francisco, Los Angeles? And, and sort of their satellites were the whole universe of California. I mean, it-
0: I think it was definitely being taken into account by the campaign, but by public support, you know, the, the college kids who marched in the street after Prop 8 passed, uh, I think they, you know, most voters just assumed that their world reflects the whole world. Sure. That makes sense. Also, like I said, the Obama campaign was really, I mean, sapped a lot of resources. And I'm not saying the Obama campaign was a bad thing, but
1: uh, it it took a lot of resources away from other progressive causes. Right. So allies um, and activists who probably would have been the most likely to support the No on 8 campaign were occupied almost entirely with Obama. Exactly. So when the protests broke out, you mentioned that there was a giant repeal Prop 8 banner and there was a DJ who set up in Dolores Park. So logistically, how do these things happen? How do you get a giant banner for an impromptu protest? And how do you have a a DJ set up in Dolores Park for something that sort of generates spontaneously? Um, I think San Francisco was, I don't know that it still is, San Francisco is kind of a magical place
0: in that there was a critical mass of people who cared very deeply about this kind of thing. Um, So as far as the banner goes, I mean, that was something that was spray painted on a bed sheet. Like that was not a, we're going to take this to the professional printers kind of, kind of deal. That was a rag that was stretched across an intersection with repeal propates, literally spray painted in red and black and blue. Uh, as far as the DJ goes, I mean, you know, with a day's notice, someone hauled out, you know, knew that this was happening, knew that it was word got around and, uh, someone knew a DJ and, you know, someone else was like, oh, I'm, I'm friends with the head of the, you know, San Francisco nightlife association. And, you know, there's a small community of people who can put on events and they all support marriage equality, of course, in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, you get a couple of the right people together. This thing is happening and we want to make it great. And oh yeah, of course I'll donate my time. So, you know, with the day's notice, you haul out a generator and you get your records out there and you call your DJ friend and bam,
1: you're good. So I think it was Kate Kendall who observed that young activists didn't really get engaged until they felt like it was their movement, um, that it wasn't Uh, sort of an older generations movement or the gay movement, uh, like capital T, capital G. But it wasn't until they felt like it was their movement that they started to get involved. To what extent do you think that ingredient was missing during the campaign, getting younger people to feel like this was something that not only was meaningful to them, but that they had some ownership or some stake in?
0: 100% missing. Uh, The campaign was so top-down. I mean, you see that in things like, we need yard signs. Well, you can't have yard signs because we've decided that you shouldn't have them. Uh, And I think that's something that is very hard to replicate, but it happened because of Obama. There were so many young people involved in the Obama campaign, and that campaign did such a good job of making it feel like this is your campaign. You're a crucial member of this, that when Prop 8 passed, uh, a lot of the enthusiasm that you saw for fighting Prop 8 was a direct result of people feeling empowered from Obama. And we're going to see that in a future chapter with uh, some of the folks who got to work in New York.
1: Yeah, it seems like um, movements don't really get moving until some sort of inciting incident reminds people that this is a thing that affects them. Those incidents often have a human cost. Is there any way to motivate people to take proactive action and get ahead of things rather than sort of wait for a disaster to galvanize a community? I think it almost always takes a disaster, uh, you know, in, in other cases pertaining to LGBT
0: liberation, you know, it might be a suicide crisis or it might be, uh, you know, the uh, revoking of rights as has happened in, in Indiana with passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that actually is just a, a wolf in sheep's clothing to discriminate. I think it takes a really masterful campaign to make the case that we're going we're gonna to change things, we're going to make things better. When you don 't have you know like the the infomercial footage in grainy black and white of someone who who 's unable to put the lid on a tupperware container you got to show them this is this is how bad things are before you tell them how great it could be. I wish I could think of an example of a campaign that had successfully inspired people without there being some sort of villain or, or some sort of crisis and listeners, if you can think of one i 'd love to hear it. you can tweet at me at Matt Baume, um, because I'd love to be able to say that that it has been done successfully. And I'm sure it must have been done successfully at some point. I just, I can't think of any.
1: No, nor can I. And that's why I was asking, because it does seem like these movements, uh, even when ultimately they do a lot of good, just by their nature are reactionary. And wouldn't it be nice to be able to foresee, uh, you know, a better future and then work toward it rather than, waiting for a state to throw families into chaos and then scramble to do something about it. Isn't it pretty to think so? Thank you again for bumming everyone out. (laughs) Uh, That's what I'm here for. It's the Dark Souls of Gay Marriage podcasts. That word liberation. Now, I don't know if this is just me, but to me, it conjures up images of the 1960s probably because I recognize it from uh, women's lib, which for some reason in the eighties was still a punchline on like Johnny Carson and stuff like, Ooh, women's lib. <laughs> uh, who was that? I don't know, Mr. Magoo. It's not Mr. Magoo. <laughs> sure. Do
0: you feel like liberation is, is a, a jargon term? Is it, is it too technical? This, you know, I use it to mean like self-determination essentially.
1: Well, I'm not sure that it's too jargony. I just feel like, um, and again, maybe I'm alone in this, but it, feels like a little a little archaic Hmm. like from an era of activism that was maybe our parents generation or maybe just sort of on the cusp of being a generation ahead of them it sounds like a lyric from hair there's nothing wrong with that it's just you know i don't really hear it used with any kind of positive connotations these days Hmm. And, and maybe i'm mistaken about that
0: Yeah, I think maybe outside of activist communities, liberation may be associated with, like you say, that old fashioned kind of activism, particularly because I think there's this idea now that, well, we're liberated, you know, women's women's lib sounds like a very old fashioned term. And so even if you're using it to mean self-determination and equality, uh, I think the association, you're right, the association is strong with the 70s. That having been said, uh, it's still a thing that is necessary to talk about. So you know, in, in terms of people being free to self-determine their trajectory in life and what they want to be when they uh, when they grow up, or what they want to be now that they are grown ups, and being free from—I mean, I mean—what we're really talking about here is being free from constraints, uh, you know, and part of free from a system of oppression. Uh, which I guess that too—that system of oppression—feels very um, maybe 1960s, 70s, and also very
1: Occupy Wall Street. So it sounds a bit strident, maybe? Yeah, and, and, there, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Because, I mean, when you strip the word liberation of any kind of connotations and you just go with what it literally means, what you just said, then, you know, it's unambiguously positive. To be liberated from any kind of oppression is obviously a good thing.
0: Does it feel weird to say liberation when you're talking about, say, um, trans people being kicked out of their homes because they're trans or uh, lesbians being fired from their jobs be- just because they're lesbians? Does liberation feel like the right word to use when when talking about ending that kind of discrimination?
1: It doesn't feel natural to me, but I don't think it's incorrect. Like, I understand what you're saying when you say it. Mm. I don't know what the right term would be there. I guess equality. Uh... I feel, yeah, equality feels more current to me than liberation even though i you know when even though i think they're getting at the same idea or are they because if you are equal within a system of oppression yeah you're not still oppressed yeah
0: no i i think you're right that there's maybe a shifting of priorities there rather than the not quite smash the state but fight the system approach to the let us into the system approach i wonder if that's that's been the the shift in, in values when it comes to activism you know
1: popular values when it comes to activism over the last 40 years Having not thought about that at all, that sounds right to me, that you look at protests of the 60s and 70s, and it was very, you know, the system needs to be rebuilt so it doesn't oppress anybody. And these days, it's more about, let us all into the system so we can be oppressed the same amount.
0: <laughs> I think that sounds about right. Uh, also, having thought very little about that, but yeah, I think that's, that's a, a fair comparison.
1: Amy was talking a bit about uh, her gay identity and how when she was younger, uh, her identity as a lesbian pretty much defined her completely. And it was only when she moved to a place where she wasn't oppressed that she was able to discover these other sides of herself. She was interested in having career and family. In the absence of oppression, what is the value of gay identity? In other words, do we just stick together because people are being jerks to us, and it's easier to confront jerks if you stick to other people who identify as you identify.
0: I think people are always going to form tribes, and we form tribes for all kinds of different reasons, and, and because we are oppressed is, is a big one. Um, but I think, I think there will always be a reason for LGBTs to get together. I mean...
1: For, if, well, for no there's a, an obvious reason. Be, yes,
0: sure, sure. I mean, for no other reason than, than that we want to go to bed together. But uh, because... LGBTs have always existed. Uh, I think that there will, and, and always will. Uh, I think there will always be a reason for people with this this common trait uh, that that we are somewhat uh, unique. Uh, you, you know, we're not the majority. There's something about us that sets us apart from the mainstream. I think that's something that will always motivate some form of community. And I don't know what gay identity is going to be. I don't think it's even going to be called gay. But I, I think there will always be. A reason to form community around uh, same sex attraction, for for lack of a better word, or maybe not same sex attraction, but uh, gender ambiguity and uh, queerness uh, around um, people who fall outside the mainstream of binary gender. I think that's not something that will go away. And I'm not sure what that community will look like uh, when those people are welcomed and comfortable, but it is, it will always be something that, that sets that group apart. And for that reason, because they are a group apart, I think that
1: the community will always exist. Do you think there's a point where LGBT people are assimilated so much so that gay identity becomes kind of like German American identity where, you know, there's Oktoberfest?
0: I think we've already reached a point. That's pretty close to that. I mean, you go to a pride in a major city right now and You know, there'll be the old timers who are fretting about how straight pride has gotten. uh, And then there's everybody else, the
1: young folks, who are like, we, this is fun, it's a party. And yeah, that feels very much like on St. Patrick's Day when everyone's Irish. It does. And you've done a lot of interviews for your other podcasts, Sewers of Paris, and for your news thingies. And we did a cross-country trip last year where you talked to a lot of people. Um, And something I've noticed is that there is... uh, a generational shift it seems like in terms of the gay narrative uh a lot of the people who are much younger um often don't have coming out stories or don't have the same kind of coming out stories that the older generation has um you know you you definitely spoke to more than one person who's sort of younger than his mid-20s who instead of him being the one who came out other people just basically told him he was gay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's either I came out and everything was fine, or I was the last person to out me, like everyone else was just waiting for it to happen.
1: You know, which strikes me as the the coming out story is so foundational um, for so many queer people's personal narratives. And it, it seems like living in this era with less oppression, uh, we're starting to see those narratives change and possibly kind of... The edges are getting sanded down to the point where it's just an American narrative as opposed to necessarily a queer narrative.
0: That's an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, I think it's it's very American in that it, there's sort of a melting pot quality to it where it's no longer, you know, it, it's comparable to, say, an immigrant group that comes to the country and they're ostracized and then gradually a lot of time goes by and then it feels very strange to future generations. Oh, the Irish were hated? You know, there comes a point where, where the kids are like, why was that ever a thing? And I think that's definitely what we're seeing with, with the, the queer identity. But that having been said... Um, Queer people are in an interesting place because we come from everywhere, and you never know where we're gonna pop up uh, so it's not like uh this is a community that has a genetic identity where we're you know your father was was Italian and his father and we come from Italy. Uh, this is a community that kind of uh pops up randomly throughout the population by surprise uh, so I think that quality you know, makes us a little unique. And, and I think it's a, something, it'll be very interesting to see how this changes in say 20 years time when, you know, people don't even need to come out and they're just like, Oh, I'm dating a man. Now I'm dating a woman now. And everyone's like, I don't care. There will still be that quality of like, I'm doing something with gender that most people aren't. Mm-hmm. And I think that will still challenge people when they realize that there's something about them that is unusual and what kind of community that forms will be different from what we know now because it won't have that ingredient of and we must flee to ghettos uh, gay ghettos to protect ourselves uh, and to escape from the mainstream instead it's I think it's going to be much more and we must come together to celebrate what we are and and find our common ground rather than that ingredient of we must put
1: up walls to protect ourselves well on the subject of putting up walls Somebody related an anecdote where a student was saying that homosexuals start as sexual deviants and then they go to jail and it turns them gay. Yes. Yes, that's definitely true. That is a fascinating idea of the gay life cycle, Um, but also... Didn't a politician, like, <laughs> this year make the same comment? That was Ben Carson, who oh, just surprise. seems to be, yeah, wrong about everything
0: that he says. Not just wrong, but, like, horrifyingly wrong. Yeah, he said that people go to jail and they turn gay. And he's, he had this, like, really cute interview where he's like, I think we all know what happens, where gay people come from, and we know what happens when people go to jail.
1: What are you talking about? This man's a doctor. I mean, it's not worth unpacking, but... But based on that theory, does that mean every gay has been in jail (laughs) or they've been seduced? I don't know. Like jail is the Petri dish that
0: homosexuality comes from. And then it goes out into the population and and proliferates. Okay. Like, What does he think? I mean, I think he's just looking at jail and being like, well, people turn gay in jail. So I guess
1: that's where it comes from. Okay, But but that's like looking at a pile of oily rags and seeing a mouse walk out of it and think oily rags turn into mice. Yes. Yes. I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, thank God I've never needed Ben Carson to operate on my brain, because
0: God knows what he would have done to it. He did leave a sponge in some woman's brain. (laughs) I I mean, that's kind of a metaphor for what he's doing to the country.
1: Join the impact. That was Amy's organization? Yes. Well, Amy and Willow. Right. And that was a website that initially um, was used to organize these massive protests. And then after that, the protest interest kind of dwindled. Is that correct? I'd say that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that initial rush of protest right after Prop 8 passed, was that focused in any way on affecting change, or was it a tantrum? I don't think it was
0: either. There was a distinct lack in those actions of future action. Uh, you know, I spoke to, to one person who pointed out that symbolic actions are great, and it's great to give people a, an outlet for their feelings, but then you've got to give them something to do. And there was not much organized effort to give people something to do, in part because there wasn't a lot to be done. Uh, There was an investigation into ballot repeal, and that's not something that, you know, you can harness large numbers of people to do, because that's something that that researchers do. And there were more symbolic actions. Uh, And then, you know, people would come out in the streets when something big happened. But... uh, there were the very dedicated people who really did get down in the in the you know get their hands dirty and, and get to work, but most people All they needed was the symbolic action to vent and then, you know, a few months later to get an email that said, uh, and today's the day we rally again, or now we need your support and now we need you to send an email or something like that. Most people just are not able to devote that much energy to something outside of venting their own feelings.
1: Do you think having participated in a massive action like that made them feel more invested in the cause, made them feel more connected to it?
0: yes absolutely uh, if If that action hadn't been available, people would have felt very helpless. I think that 's one way that accidentally uh, the movement replicated what the Obama campaign did when Amy and Willow organized uh, join the impact rallies. they were not doing it with the intention of and now we're going to make people more invested in the movement. It was just. Look, this is what people do when something upsetting like this happens, and uh, this is how we organize people, and and this is just what happens when when there's a, a groundswell of emotion around a cause. So let's do it. And, yeah, I think it did make people much more invested invested enough to, for example, uh, sign up to go door to door you know canvassing or invested enough to uh write letters to the editor. Mm, some people, but a lot of people just were invested enough to hold up a sign, and maybe next time this issue was on the ballot uh to consider voting more than they would have otherwise, so yeah, I think on balance the the actions, even though the you know protest actions were maybe not the most effective means of change. I think they had a very positive outcome.
1: Well, we have arrived at the outcome of questions. Thank you. There will be no more questions. Okay. Unless listeners have questions, in which case... There will uh, be lots more questions. Yes, and they can send them where? Where do they send them?
0: You can reach me at Matt Baum on Twitter, and you can also leave a review in the iTunes store. (laughs)
1: Oh, here's a review from Mike in Pasadena. Discussing the winning of marriage equality without talking about Lawrence v. Texas or Anthony Kennedy is like discussing the Civil War without mentioning Abraham Lincoln or the Emancipation Proclamation.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a good comparison. Uh, thank you, Mike in Pasadena. Um, you know, I, I don't bring up a lot of the politics and uh, or the uh, the lawsuits or the nitty gritty of strategy in this book, um, in the same way that I think you can tell a lot of stories about the Civil War without talking about the Emancipation Proclamation or Abraham Lincoln. You know, what I'm focusing on with the book is uh, people's lives rather than on people's work. Um, and, you know, the, the, the personal day to day effect that, that this sort of thing had on people who were either down in the trenches or or, uh living their lives and just trying to get married, for heaven's sake. Uh, if you do want a book about um, the, the politics and the history, um, I highly recommend Victory by Linda Hirschman, which is a lovely book by a wonderful writer. Uh, but, uh, you know, what I want to focus on here with, with these particular stories is, you know, take a snapshot of what was American life like at this time.
1: I have a confession to make. Yes? I read the first page of the next chapter. <gasps> and... Lawrence, V. Texas is on the first page.
0: Oh no, it is. Yeah, oh, I'm. St- that's terrible. I can't believe that.
1: Well, I'm. I'm giving up on this book. I'm not listening. It. In- I'm not reading. I'm not listening any further so that's my little preview and coming attraction, but I don't know what is beyond the first page of the next chapter, so why don't you tell us what's up next week? So next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what comes after the protest, because the protests are all very good and very nice, and they have a
0: positive outcome, but uh, what's actually, what are people actually going to do? So we're going to be talking about that, and also about the big fight that's brewing between folks who want to be cautious and take it easy and not take any risks, and the people who are like, damn the torpedoes again, full speed ahead, and uh, let's, let's take
1: the most audacious action we can. Can. And listener, the most audacious action you could take is to go to Amazon and buy this book. Where can they do that? Oh, so audacious. Uh yeah, just search for Defining Marriage on Amazon or search for my name, Matt Baum, M A T T B A U M E. The last D is for erotic. It isn't. And while they're there making their purchase, they can also leave a review. Yes, please. I love to read the feedback on the book in part because it's been uh unwaveringly positive, so that feels very nice. I've had some lovely five-star reviews on the book, so uh, if you have something nice to say, please do say it. Here's something nice from Ken Clark. Baum has brought me up to date on the marriage equality movement. Many gays in my generation have been focused on HIV/AIDS activism and missed the early part of Baum's forty-plus year timeline.
0: Yay! Thank you, Ken. And yeah, I agree. Uh, sometimes it's very easy to feel like our history was reset in the nineteen eighties and started from scratch at that point. Uh, there's a lot of lost history before that time. So, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was to to capture that stuff and and to remind people that that queer people have existed since
1: forever. Uh, And and our stories may have been hidden, but they were still happening. And queer people exist on the internet, and you seem determined to talk to all of them. I want to talk to each and every one. You can
0: find my podcast, The Sewers of Paris. That's about the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. I've got some wonderful Halloween interviews coming up in October. Uh, That's at sewersofparis.com. Spoopy! (laughs) Spoopy and crappy. Uh, (laughs) And you can also find my uh, YouTube videos That's at youtube.com slash Matt Baum, where I talk about LGBT issues and entertainment. And furries. And furries. Thanks very much to the folks who chatted with me for this episode. That's Jenny Pizer and Kate Kendall, Cleve Jones, and Dustin Lance Black. And until next time, friends, by the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast Over. (laughs)
1: Poopy. <laughs>
2: spoopy spoopy